Well, please take your Bibles, and I hope that you have them with you tonight or your devices, and turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. And here we have a choice portion of God's Word. When I mention Psalm 8, for many of you, your heart will have a quick ding, ding, ding moment, like when we turn to specific passages of Scripture that you are overly familiar with. And the reason you're overly familiar with them is that at some point in your past, you committed it to memory. When I was five years old in the kindergarten that I attended, uh, we learned whole passages of Scripture. And I'll never forget Miss Carol Lee Croy uh, going through the hand motions of Psalm 8 with us. And, how, and so part of why I think I remember Psalm 8 is not only hiding God's Word in my heart, but her demonstrative uh, hand motions that children remember those kinds of things. So when I come to a text like Psalm 8, so many memories flood back. Just the other day, Suzanne ran up to me, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, listen to my scripture. And she began to quote Psalm 8, which begins, as we'll see in just a moment, in a very momentous way. And my heart was made glad as we reflected, and my heart went back thinking about how I hid the same passage of scripture in my heart many years ago. And you may have that same experience. When you hide God's word in your heart, you become intimately acquainted with it. You become inter intimately familiar with it. And so when a pastor says, turn to John 17 or turn to Acts 3, and you have spent time maybe studying that text, becoming intimately familiar with that text, you experience the same thing in your own heart and mind. Psalm chapter 8 begins with these beautiful words. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes, and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory. And honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. If you are familiar with world history, maybe the name Louis XIV will ring a bell for you. Louis XIV was known in history, in the history particularly of the country of France, as the Sun King, one of the most ostentatious monarchs to ever rule on the world stage. His reign was 72 years and 110 days long. He died... And at his funeral, he prescribed every detail of what the service would look like, like most monarchs do. Intoxicated with his own power, self-consumed ways, he called himself the great monarch. He would regularly describe himself as, I am the state. But in 1715, when he died, at his funeral, he had his gold coffin placed at the very front of the the, the, the um not the, the church, but his, uh, my mind's going completely blank, but one of these majestic cathedrals. 
and he had it there placed at the front, and he, at the proper time, the bishop was to arise and to say some very specific words. But when the bishop rose, he did something that stunned the nation, particularly in the light of Louis XIV's reputation and practice and ways. Bending down from the pulpit, he extinguished the lone candle that was lit over the gold uh, coffin there in the, in the cathedral, and the room went completely black, went completely dark. The second that happened, everyone gasped in shock and awe. There was a moment of silence, and then the bishop said these words, Only God is great. Talk about effect. Talk about shock and awe. Louis was known as the Sun King because he loved to cover as much as possible in gold and mirrors, often reflecting the sun's rays and providing a majestic appearance as people would come upon his palace. This is exactly what man tends to do in his own heart and mind. If you look in our own hearts, we would typically say, look at culture today. Before we get there, simply look at your own heart. Before you came to faith in Christ, even now as you grow in your sanctification in Christ, simply look into your heart and there you will see the struggle and the battle for pride, preeminence. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If you would follow after me and be my disciple, you must take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. And it's those of us who've called upon the name of Christ and are his disciples, we find that the struggle is real sometimes. When we look into our hearts, when we examine ourselves, we will find that either there is a heart there that worships God alone, and a heart that acknowledges, as this bishop did, that only God alone is great or majestic. Or we will find an inflated view of self. An inflated view of self. Our words will communicate this. I, I, my, my, mine, mine, those types of things. Or words that may be cloud words or they could be humble words that tend to use we, us, our, that type of thing. Oftentimes, our words reveal what is in our hearts. Oftentimes, the volume of content of what we talk about reveals what our heart's posture is. And one principle I just want to lay down as we begin to look at Psalm 8 is simply this. Where praise is filling your heart, pride will be non-existent. Where there is pride, praise will be non-existent. Make the choice. Pride or praise. And I'm going to pull that back in in just a moment as we get into our outline, our lesson, as we see the significance of that very point. But just to make sure we don't miss it, either our hearts are hearts of praise bent towards the one true God, or they're bent towards praise of self, pride, lifting up ourselves. And this is seen, of course, in our our society. I think it was 2013 where the word selfie actually became coined into the Oxford Dictionary. Simply look around and see a society that is consumed with self. It's just a fact. It's a, as John Adams says, facts are very stubborn things. It's truth. You look around and observe culture. But don't look too far. Just simply look at your own life. And look, I'll look at my life and we'll see these markers that are present there. So as we look into Psalm chapter 8, the superscription in our text says, The glory of the Lord in creation, but specifically to the chief musician, on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. Now, the full historical background of Psalm 8 is not fully known, but I'm going to pull in in just a moment what I, what I believe it to be. 
But what we do know is David, the psalmist David, is, is standing here in a moment of exaltation. Now, we've been looking at some of these previous psalms that have come before. It, it's not been this way, has it? David has been dealing with dark nights of the soul. David has been struggling with enemies and unconfessed sin and struggles and doubts and cynicism and slander, all these different types of problems. But here is the first note of praise that we see in Psalm 8, what most people think of and consider when they hear of the book of Psalms. They think of Psalms like this one. Psalm 8, which is a declaration of praise for God and who he is and for his glory. And so as we look into this text, we see that David gives praise and glory to God for who he is, his power to run creation and ability to manage creation. We'll frame our thoughts very quickly this evening. Four, four key thoughts. I want you to know God's splendor, God's strength, God's sovereignty, and God's supremacy. Verse 1, we'll see God's splendor. And the context here is over everything. God's splendor over all, verse 1. Verse 2, God's strength over all, God's sovereignty, verses 3 through 8, God's supremacy. And each one of these attributes of God or acts of God by necessitate mean there is no competition, period. That's what David is exalting in. So first of all, I want you to note in verse 1, God's splendor over all. David here looks up into the heavens and looks up into the skies and finds and sees that God's greatness far exceeds what even creation can reveal to his eyes. He begins and ends Psalm 8 here with a declaration of God's greatness. Notice verse 1 and verse 9. How the opening line of verse 1 begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then go down to verse 9. The, the inclusio is the uh, literary device here where it opens and begins and ends with the same bookends, if you will. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now, if you're not careful, as you look here at this first point here, you'll think those two words are the same. But notice how the first Lord is in all caps. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. The first word, Lord, there is all caps, and that is the name of God, Yahweh, which we referenced Sunday night in our last study in Psalm 7. David regularly appeals to this name of God, Yahweh. But the second word there is, O Lord, our Lord, it is the word for Adonai. Lord, Adonai, controller, sovereign, God, the God you could say who reigns. So as we look here at verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic, if you will, as we sang just a moment ago, is your name. This word excellent, this word majestic, if your translation renders it that, refers to something that is radiant, something that reveals splendor. But particularly as David is using this word, he's exalting in his God. He's exalting in the radiant splendor of who God is and his person, what God says, what God does. David is having a moment, a moment of exuberant praise. A moment like songwriter Jack Hayford, Pastor Jack Hayford, back in the 80s experienced when he penned the words, How Majestic Is Your Name, the one that we just sang, a very popular song of yesteryear for sure. How many of you guys, it's been a long time since, you, since you've sung that song, or you recognize that song for some of you? Yes, okay, great. Well, here, just, to, just to, by way of explanation, Jack Hayford was in London 
according to his own testimony. And he was experiencing the, not the coronation of the queen, but some type of celebration with the queen and all the pomp and all the circumstance. It was breathtaking. It was, he was an awestruck. He was having a moment, a very real moment. But then it began to dawn on him, if this is this amazing, if this is this impressive, if this whole ceremony and pomp and circumstance is what it is, what will it be like to be in the throne room of heaven one day before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? He asked his wife to give him a quick pen and piece of paper, and Jack Hayford was a prolific songwriter, and he quickly began to write down the words that he was feeling, and he channeled them toward an anticipatory day where he would see his own God, how majestic is his name in all the earth, giving us, therefore, a song to sing for many years now. Well, that's exactly what David is doing. David is the great hymn writer. He's the great praise leader of, of the children of Israel for the church, really, of all time. And here David is exulting in God's splendor. Now, notice with me, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now, notice David gives us a twofold division here in verse 1. Of, of categorizing God's greatness. And the first one he brings up is, how excellent is your name in all the earth? In other words, David is thinking horizontally. As David begins to look around, he begins to see and to recognize God's perfect character as seen in his created world, in his created kingdom. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. Why do we sing songs like that? Are we nature people? No. We follow the great shepherd king of Israel who looks around and says, wait a second, I see the animal kingdom. I see the plants and flowers and see God's ever-tending care towards sustaining them. I see God's glory arrayed more beautiful than anything Solomon could ever have by looking at a simple flower or flower arrangement. This speaks of the glory of God. Many of you ladies enjoy decorating taking dominion over your corner of the earth in your house, your home, your bedrooms, your living room, your kitchen, and taking God's beautiful and glorious creation. And so where some people might say, I have no time for that kind of thing, let me give you a little bit of a theological backing. Say, I am taking dominion and following the Lord's command and following in his own creative act of making this world a beautiful place and an amazing place. Let me just tell you this. God is not boring. God is not dull. God is not, listen, just simply look at the created order. And I'm getting off track here. This is not a theology for the arts or for house design by any means. But that being said, David here looks around his world. And David looks at the rivers and the oceans, the hills and the mountains, and the constantly ever-changing canvas of the universe. And as the sun begins to rise, or as the sun begins to go down, or the moon begins to go into place, it changes the landscape of his world. And what he says is, Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And thereby simply saying this, if you don't ever have a reason to praise God, simply look out and look around, and your heart will be stirred to praise the Lord, your creator God. You know, we pity the atheists, don't we? Because they have no God to thank. They have no God to praise. Friends, our, our, our faith is a singing faith, a praising faith. 
and exalting faith in who God is. One of my favorite times of the day is right after it rains, at dusk, and there's a cool in the air. It's a wonderful way to end the day reflectively, maybe sitting on the porch or walk, taking a walk down the road. It's just a beautiful time. For you, it may be as the sun rises in the cool of the morning that we've been experiencing recently, when the sun begins to rise and these cooler mornings are coming. Either way, David exalts in God's splendor. And the fact that God's splendor is revealed, first of all, in the earth. But that's not where David stops. David works his way from the somewhat big micro to the very big macro, if you will, by looking up into the heavens. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens? The heavens. So as we direct our attention for David, we have simply a greater cause for worship of the Lord than even David had, who penned these words of the heavens. Because as David looks up into the sky, he sees the constellations for sure. He sees the stars the sun and the moon, and all those different types of things. But friends, we've got the new NASA James Webb telescope, which is taking us millions and millions of miles into the galaxies. We're seeing black holes for the very first time. We're seeing the sounds of black holes that I believe they said was 200 million miles away from Earth. That's crazy. How can we even comprehend this stuff? Black holes are unbelievable. Whereas... The scientific community is now questioning even the Big Bang, some headlines are telling us. They're saying, wait a second, the type of insight that we're getting into our universe with this, this latest of technology, it's mind-blowing. Whereas we as Christians say, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We find our hearts stirred to praise. Now, they, these moments have happened all throughout history. Galileo came up with his telescope and was the first to realize that, no, the earth, the, 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 the universe does not revolve around the earth. It revolves around the sun. These moments of discovery where it leads our hearts to know our God more intelligently, more specifically. What they tell us is it goes on and on and on. And so David looks into the heavens and realizes God's glory is greater than even that incomprehensibility because God made that. And friends, I want to remind you this evening, as we'll see secondly, is that whatever God creates, he owns. This is David's God. And hopefully, friends, it is your God and it is my God as we, as we worship him here this evening. So as we look into our text, we find that God's splendor is the first thing we see. It is the great motivator for praise. And as we'll see later on down at the end of Psalm 8, it humbles David. What is man, he will say? that you are mindful or even give thought to him. God, you are great and you are good. Secondly, we see not only God's splendor in verse 1, but secondly, we see God's strength, God's comprehensive strength, God's strength overall in verse 2. And the ways we are reminded of how God works is always throughout the unfolding drama of redemption, opposite of the way we think, the way we work. Notice with me what the text says. David says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, so that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. What an interesting 
verse. Now, there's a lot of things that come to mind here. We think of the text in the Gospels where Jesus tells his disciples to not hinder the little children and let them to come to him. Here, David picks up on that same idea and says that God has ordained in his sovereignty an unusually, and we'll see in just a moment how God works throughout the scriptures, strength in the mouths of babes. And if we're not careful, church, we will see babes as annoyances that we need to shuffle out. And as we shuffle them out of the church, we shuffle out the strength and the glory of God if we're not careful. Here, the text says simply this, out of the mouth of children, out of the mouth of babes, you have ordained strength. Now, let's go back to the superscription here. On the instrument of Gath, to the chief musician, on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. We don't know this definitively, but it is believed, and I believe this, that this psalm was written right after David killed Goliath. And if that is true, it helps inform this psalm here. The idea is, is that if you remember in 1 Samuel, I believe it's 17, David goes to visit his brothers. He goes to visit the front lines of Israel as they're fighting at a stalemate, if you will, the Philistines. And there is a mighty man named Goliath, maybe one of the most familiar Bible accounts in all the scriptures, so I'm going to assume that you know it. David comes and begins to hear the noise of Goliath and says, is there not a cause? Is there not a God who reigns? Are we not doing something about this? And sometimes that's exactly what happens. The most innocent among us, the children among us, come in and state the most obvious things among us, don't they? Adults, sometimes we get scared, sometimes we lose our trust in God, we lose our faith in the greater cause, and we get comfortable, we get secure, and so we all just kind of make ourselves feel comfortable that we're all status quo. And then all of a sudden, here comes a David who says, wait a second, are you going to let him blaspheme God? And they also, with eyes of flesh, look at David and like, hey, what are you going to do about it? So listen, David comes before the Lord, excuse me, comes before Goliath with the fear of the Lord, and David says to Goliath, you come with, to me with a, a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. He's just simple enough to trust in his God and his God alone. Now, that's one example of how God works. And that is, again, I'll tell you, hypothetical. But it is believed that David wrote this following that account using an instrument that would be familiar there with that area. But as we look into the scriptures, we find that this is certainly the way that God works. When God sends a redeemer, when God sends a hero, if you will, when God sends his man, it's often not the man that I would pick or you would pick if we were to pick a man. Simply look back into the book of Genesis and find that God top, topples down Egypt through a simple baby in the midst of a massacre of babies, male babies, raising up ultimately Moses to be his babe, that he raises up into the fear of the Lord and calls him out for service. God delights in using the weak, base things of the world, and he ordains strength there. The strength's through him, not through the instrument, of course. This is countercultural to the way that, that our world thinks and looks and operates. You could look to 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 14, and look at baby Joash. There's a massacre again. You're going to find in a number of these accounts that I give to you, there's a common thread. There's a common theme. There's bloodshed taking place. Then a woman comes and takes him and spares him. He's of the king's household. She's killing every threat to the, uh, to the kingdom. He is raised. 
quietly in the shadows, and God raises him up to restore his people again to the fear of the Lord, to repair the temple, and to bring again the prominence of the, the scriptures to his people, to bear upon their consciences. Text after text, again and again, we see in the scriptures, verse 2, being played out before us. There would come a day where the true and greater David would come. What would signify his coming? He would come as a helpless babe. Here we find David announces and declares prophetically. There's a couple of prophetic themes here in Psalm 8. Verse 6 is another one he picks up on where he says, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. There's a, a, there's a sense to where that's in the here and now. There's also a fuller day where there's an ultimate day where all things will be placed under his feet, the true and greater David's feet. So David exalts in this. God's strength is apparent, as we see here in the text, in man's weakness, spoken by children, sung by infants. God's strength is shown also, as we see in verse 2, over men's wickedness. He says, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. God has a way of silencing those who blaspheme him against him. God delights in taking people that no one would use. People who surrender themselves to him and say, here am I, Lord, use me. And God delights in raising them up for his kingdom purposes and silencing his enemies, silencing his adversaries, silencing the avenger. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. And again, a familiar portion that just kind of reminds us that we need to get this in our, our mind again and again that says, behold our God. This is how he works. God does not work according to the flesh alone. Oftentimes, God works in the complete opposite of it. What we see here is in the midst of personality disputes, personality divisions that are taking place in the church at Corinth, Paul asked the question in verse 13, is Christ divided? Now he says this because there are those in the congregation in verse 12 who say, well, I follow John MacArthur, or I follow John Piper, or I follow R.C. Sproul. Well, I follow these personality divisions. I love all those guys. Don't get me wrong. We're just trying to bring it to bear right here and wake you up a little bit. There are those in the church that say, I, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And Paul says, I'm glad I baptized none of you because of your spirit. And then he goes on to say this. He reminds them of how God works. He says, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, For it is written, now here he quotes Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, God doesn't need anything this world has to offer to get his kingdom established, to, for his purposes to continue. It's why he calls fishermen, former tax collectors, and all types of a motley assortment of disciples and crew to come and to follow him because they're just humble enough to bow the knee to him. And he takes them. He calls and equips them. God does not come along and pick the brightest and the best. Always, you could say. It's not to say if you are talented and 
efficiently skilled, that's great. God delights in using you, but he is not limited to you. God uses those who see that they need him and him alone. That God will use them in spite of their giftings. He will not call them for their giftings exclusively. And Paul asked this question, he says, Where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Notice verse 21, the comprehensiveness of God's program. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He goes on in verse 26, he says, You see your calling, brethren. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And ultimately, if you'll jump over to verse 31, why does God do this? And he says, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God delights in silencing his enemies, silencing his adversaries, silencing his avengers, avenging his people. Well, Psalm chapter 8, let's move on to one more point here before we round up our study for tonight and hit pause. We see God's splendor in verse 1, God's strength in verse 2, and we'll introduce number 3, God's sovereignty, verses 3 through 8. God's sovereignty, and of course, if it's truly God's power, it's over all. It's a comprehensive sovereignty. As I quoted a second ago, R.C. Sproul says, Whatever God makes, he owns. And as David exalts in creation on the earth, as David looks to the heavens and sees the glory of God revealed, and it stirs his heart up to praise, fulfilling Romans 1, where Romans 1 says, from the natural created order, it is very clear that there is a God. David has responded to that and says, Oh God, I worship you and you alone. He, number three, brings to bear to us that God is sovereign, that he reigns. For God to be sovereign simply means that God is God. As we see there in verse three, that he created the universe, making the planets and positioning the planets to where they stay. Verse three, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Here, David gives God personal characteristics, anthropomorphic characteristics, which is the term that gives God personality. God's arm, his eye, uh, gives us an understanding that helps us understand who God is. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, is what Scripture tells us. But when David uses this language, when Scripture uses this language, it helps us to personalize God in a way that we can understand him. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, in other words, that you you have made and that you put into place. As Job describes, he says, you have created this world, you tell the seed to come this far and yet no further. He understands God's absolute sovereignty over all. So verse 3, God's creating of the universe, the making of the planets, the positioning of the planets. And then in verses 4 through 8, we'll, we'll hit pause here, but David then begins to go through a list of how God cares for not only man, but how he cares for irrational creatures, the created order, the birds, the beasts, the fish, the flocks, and the herds, and how this comforts David's heart. So as we hit pause here tonight, friends, listen. Look around you. Look up. Look out. This is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, if you remember. 
when our hearts are prone to fear, when our hearts are prone to worry, as we mentioned at the beginning, our society tends to just look inward and right here. We have our devices, we're distracted, we're busy, we're entertained. But Jesus, like David, the true and better David, would have us to look up and out, to see our frailty, to see our understanding of our God's world, who he is, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lily. Look at the flowers. The true and greater David shepherds our heart as well to behold our God in his glory in creation and to run to him, to rest in him, to trust in him. And may our hearts be strengthened as we think, oh Lord, our Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he your covenant-keeping God? Have you bowed the knee to him? Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. Can you say that? Is that something that you sing? Is that something you hear other people say? Or do you hold to that personally in simple faith, childlike faith, as we see here in the Word of God? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for our, a shepherd here who guides our hearts to see you for who you are. Father, we want to behold your glory. We don't want to have wrong thoughts of you or belittling thoughts of you. We want to worship you just like you should be worshiped. Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. We thank you that your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we are humbled, Lord, that you have called us, that you have saved us for your service. Lord, that you would use sinners such as us. You would cleanse us and give us a new heart. That you give us robes of righteousness and give us a purpose and ordain good works for us to fulfill within your calling and within your kingdom. Father, what a privilege is ours. Father, help us to have a renewed love and a passion for you. Father, forgive us for being brand evangelists, having more of a love for an, a computer or a clothing item or a football team than we do for our great and awesome God. Let a man become a little enthusiastic in the pulpit or in life about his Lord and Master Jesus Christ. People begin to think he's losing it. But yet we lose our mind over flippant idols every day, all day. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless